Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. Good evening and welcome to the Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia El Khoury and tonight as part of our month of awareness around ADHD and ADD, we're going to speak to Mel Peake, who is the ADHD and Autism Lead at Advance, ADD Vance, in case you haven't heard it, which is a fantastic organisation providing support in and around ADHD and ADD as well as autism. So uh, I'd like to extend a really warm welcome to Mel. Mel, thanks a million for joining us on the Parents Show this evening. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So in case anybody hasn't heard about Advance, tell us a little bit about the work you do. Okay, well, we're a, a charity based in Hertfordshire and we support Um, parents and families in general um, who are living with autism and ADHD. And we also support the parents who look after the professionals who look after them. So people like teachers and TAs and social workers and doctors. So we've been around, this is our 25th anniversary year. So we've been around a while now. And what started out as simply a, a sort of helpline for parents by parents has has morphed into a much larger organisation, reaching out and, and trying to sort of embrace and celebrate neurodiversity more generally in Hertfordshire. Wow, 25 years. That's that's so impressive. And um, I'm really proud that it's Hertfordshire that has advanced, you know, um what what a what a progressive organization. So you just said a word that we hear quite a bit neurodiverse. What what's your take on that? Well how would you describe that to our parents who are listening in? Oh, it's a really tricky one because the terminology develops all the time, and um, and there are some people have some very clear preferences around that. I mean, the concept of neurodiversity is simply that we all have different brains. You know, our brains think differently and they perceive sensory stimuli in different ways and, um, and and we're all different in terms of our neurological makeups and that's that brings huge advantages to the human race because um, where you have teams of people who think differently you're more likely to come up with answers to really tricky problems and, and goodness knows there are some really tricky problems in the world today that we need some answers for so the concept of neurodiversity is is, is a really kind of broad one And the idea of of neurodiversity in relation to ADHD and autism is just that those those conditions, if you like, those ways of thinking form part of that neurodiversity. So you could say that people with um, ADHD or on the autistic spectrum, um, you could say that they are neurodivergent, if you like, in that they deviate from the norm if such a thing exists. But, you know, I think that the concept of neurodiversity really is that there is no such thing as normal and that we're all different. And, and that's a good thing. Lovely. Yeah, that's, a, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And you, you touched on it. So your support is aimed at people with ADHD, ADD, who are on the autistic spectrum, and professionals who work with them. So tell us a little bit about how that work comes into practice, what, what it's like. I mean, it can be, as a parent, it can be a really isolating experience having a child who thinks differently, um, because right from those earliest days, your child might behave differently. They might, uh, you might feel that, that, that kind of as a family, you have to do things differently to meet their needs. And, um, and all the sort of quite, quite often what happens is all the sort of typical parenting advice that one is given when your child is small doesn't tend to work. children who think differently so so it can be a really isolating experience so what what, one of the things that we really try and do is build a network of 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 other parents who are in a similar situation and and the key thing is you don't need a a formal diagnosis to access any of our services and support um, because it actually can take a long time to get a formal diagnosis 
And, you know, the majority of people, about 80% of people who are put forward for diagnosis will end up receiving one. So um, we don't we don't wait for that to happen. We say, you know, come along, find out more about ADHD, find out more about autism and related um, conditions as well, like tick disorders. And um, and the more you find out about that as a parent, the more sort of armed you are to deal with some of the challenges that, that come up. And also the better prepared you are to support your child with all the sort of strengths and interests that come um, with ADHD and similar conditions. So we're just trying to help parents build a network of other of other parents in a similar situation, learn some things about how their children perceive the world and, and work out some strategies as a family that really works um, for their child. So they can either contact us via our helpline, we have a telephone helpline, or they can join our closed Facebook group, our private Facebook group, um, which is quite nice because you can ask questions um, anonymously on that group. So you're not putting your own your own identity or that of your child at, at risk. And we also have lots of online support. So we have weekly support groups um, with up to 10 parents and two of our specialist coaches answering their, their sort of questions. And, and we also run lots of training for parents. We've got lots of workshops and six-week courses so that parents can learn more about those conditions and the strategies. And the sort of the, the highest level of support, if you like, that we offer is um, a family coaching service where we'll actually come into the family home for an hour a week, um, although through COVID that's been via Zoom. And we'll really try to help you get those strategies in place in the home to make family life as fun as it should be. Wonderful. What amazing work and so many different offerings for parents. There really is something for for everybody, you know, either you need to talk to somebody else, another parent who's in the same position as you, or you need somebody to come into your family, you know, you know, in constructive workshops. It really, it, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And do you find that parents are reluctant to get in touch? Is there a bit of hesitancy or do you find you're, you've got plenty, plenty of people knocking on your door? I think it really varies. And, you know, there still is a, a huge stigma attached to the idea of, of um, autism, ADHD and these sorts of conditions um, for some people. You know, I think that is changing, but perhaps more slowly than we'd like. I think that some parents feel that they don't have a right to get in touch until they actually have a formal diagnosis. And if I'm honest, that's how I felt as well. I remember when my daughter was two or three, I was really struggling to manage her behaviour and she was really struggling at nursery too. And it had been suggested to me that she might have um, you know, a neurodevelopmental condition, but because she didn't have a formal diagnosis, I, I, I thought that it probably was a bit premature for me to go along to some of these groups. And in the end, when she was four, I was convinced to sign up for one of Advance's six-week courses. And I'm just so relieved that I did because, you know, they say that children don't come with a manual, but it, it really felt like someone had handed me the manual to my child and, 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 you know, having really struggled to develop that bond with her over those early years. And, 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 and um, I, I just suddenly could understand her that much better. And then from that understanding, we were able to develop ways of working in the family that just worked a lot, lot better. And and almost overnight, bizarrely, she went from being a very difficult, willful, sort of hyperactive child to being much, much more compliant simply because we were meeting her basic needs um, in terms of sensory stimuli and all of that sort of thing. That's amazing. What a, what a course, what a difference a course can make, is it? And then that would be really encouraging to parents to to reach out and get in touch. And I get it, the formal diagnosis, you know, I can understand why parents would be hesitant. But actually, we were speaking to Dr. Abby Russell from Exeter University, and she was telling us that there are actually quite a lot of kind of tests isn't the right word, but um sheets on online questionnaires that can help you assess yourself because there's such a delay in a backlog of people waiting for a diagnosis. Do, do you know about them? Do you use them? Mm -hmm. and, and do you have any to recommend to parents? 
Yes, there are various online uh, questionnaires. And one of the best places for all all ADHD resources is the ADHD Foundation, um, which is a national charity. And if you go to the resources tab of their website, they've got a lot of resources for, for children, for teenagers, for parents, for teachers. So they divide it down into the different um, kinds of resources, which is really helpful. I think one of the sort of most reputable tests that you can do to check for the likelihood of ADHD is something called a QB check. Um, there's, a, there's an organization called QB, uh, a company called QB, who've created this objective online test. And it's now being used in about a third of NHS trusts across the country as part of the ADHD diagnosis. Um, and in fact, here in Hertfordshire, they're currently doing a pilot study to, to use the QB test as part of the um, ADHD diagnosis for children and young people. And if that's successful, if they feel it does save time, save clinician time and give a more accurate diagnosis, then they're going to roll that out. Um, But there are places that you can go and have that test done by trained professionals relatively quickly. So actually, at, at advance, we were the one of the first organisations in Hertfordshire to get to have trained QB checkers. So you can come and have a QB check in our office and that can be quite a good indication of whether you have ADHD, but it's not a diagnosis in and of itself. It's just an indication of whether ADHD might be likely. Great. Excellent. Excellent advice for parents. Thanks a million, Mel. So what what are the most prevalent issues you're seeing either for children or for for parents who you're seeing come come into advance? I think um, the tricky thing about ADHD is that people have a, a very clear idea of what they think it is. And they think it's typically little boys who are very hyperactive and bouncing around like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, and that ADHD is a very obvious thing. And I think when you have a very obvious case of ADHD um, that sort of fulfills those criteria, then at least you kind of know what you're dealing with. And if you can try and work out how your child, what is going to help your child to focus, what will give him that kind of natural dopamine hit to enable that reward-driven motivation to kick in and enable him to really be able to hold his attention on something for a while, then that's helpful. And obviously, medication can really help with that. And I know we're going to talk about medication in a moment. But one of the things that I see a lot is that people don't understand that ADHD is much more than that. So what we're describing there is the predominantly hyperactive kind of ADHD. But actually, ADHD can also be predominantly inattentive. And that's what used to be called ADD, attention deficit disorder. It's now all under one umbrella, ADHD, and you'd get a predominantly inattentive diagnosis if, if that's if those are the criteria that, that you mainly experience. And so actually, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of particularly children, often girls, but not exclusively girls, who are very daydreamy, very sort of wander around in a daydream. They're the ones that maybe sit at the back of the class and they don't cause any trouble, but they're staring out of the window, not achieving their potential. And what often happens, particularly with the girls, is that when they hit puberty, high levels of progesterone during certain times of the month can exacerbate their ADHD symptoms. And it can make them very emotionally volatile and impulsive. And it can also make them highly, highly sensitive to to rejection. This thing called rejection-sensitive dysphoria is a is really common amongst teenage girls. And I think one of the biggest issues we see at the moment is a lot of girls who just haven't been picked up as potentially having ADHD in their primary schools because they develop very clever ways of, of, of masking those difficulties. And then it's not until they get into secondary school and the hormones kick in that you see you know, huge behavioural issues and, um, and, and, it, and no one's really put two and two together and realised that that's ADHD. And the other problem we have is that uh, um, the majority of 
people with ADHD um, actually have the combined type where they have some inattention, but also some hyperactivity and impulsivity. And actually that can vary a lot from day to day or even hour to hour. So we often get people saying, um, particularly in schools, you can understand it, teachers saying, but it can't be ADHD because he's able to focus in the history lesson with the teacher that he likes and the subject that he likes, but he's not able to focus in the maths lesson that with a, a different teacher and a different subject. But actually, that's exactly what we do see in a, with ADHD, because we know that where somebody is highly motivated by a particular relationship or teacher or subject, they can hyper-focus, they can attend to that um, subject, they are much better able to concentrate. So yeah, it's really difficult because you would expect to see some symptoms of ADHD, some traits of ADHD in all settings, you know, whether it's at home or at school or at after school clubs or with other family members. But actually, unless you know what you're looking for, it can be very difficult to spot those traits. So, I mean, you've helped on two levels there, Mel, not only parents who were looking for those typical signs of or or kind of stereotypical signs of ADHD to understand that there's a much broader spectrum of symptoms, I suppose. So that's that's incredibly valuable to parents, but also for parents who don't have children with ADHD, but who have sons or daughters in a class with a child who is, as you say, hyper-focused in some classes and not at all in others. So it's great for us to help develop our understanding of ADHD, because I'm sure part of the problem for parents and, and for children with ADHD is a little bit of ostracization. Do you see that? Are they, are they pushed out? Are they lonely? Yes, very much so. And, you know, it's interesting because we say that we send children to school to learn the three R's, don't we? Reading, reading writing, arithmetic. And yet yeah, a lot of older young people and adults with ADHD tell us that actually all they learned at school was the three F's, fear, frustration and failure. And, and it's so, so sad. I mean, um, really very challenging for people with ADHD traits to, to, to succeed in school on so many levels. So I think they often do feel ostracized um, by their peers. The peers don't quite understand them. They sense that they're different, but they don't quite understand why. Um, people with ADHD are often a lot of fun. They're often really charismatic and they often cover up some of their challenges and difficulties by sort of being the class clown and being really good at sort of um, stand-up comedy, if you like, which is um, which can make them great fun to be around. And so in some senses, you know, other children really enjoy being with them and are really drawn to them. But also other children are very wary of them, of course, because they can get into trouble so much. And you don't necessarily want to be associated with the person who's getting into lots of trouble. And of course, it's really difficult for teachers as well, because again, you know, um, these children can be incredibly interested in a particular subject and really driven by a particular topic, but just incredibly challenging in other ways. And a teacher has to think of a whole class. Um, so if they are struggling with, you know, one person who is asking too many questions, forgetting to put their hand up, um, you know, constantly interrupting, you can see how um, a teacher might get frustrated by that and end up snapping, end up saying something, which again feeds into this this fear, this frustration, this failure. Um, and and yeah, self-esteem is a huge issue for people with ADHD. And there's you've um really shone a light on it there schools have an, such an important role to play and they're challenged by the fact that classes are full and they can't completely focus on every single child but they could also help in making day-to-day lives for children who have ADHD easier does your organization work with schools to try and help the situation and how 
Yeah, so um, so we employ um, some specialist teachers, some of whom have a diagnosis of ADHD themselves, and all of whom have children with ADHD themselves. So, you know, we've really got a lot of lived experience between us. And what they can do is they can come into schools, they can observe children who are um, particularly challenging and provide advice and support to the school and the te- individual teachers on how to manage those children. I mean, what you're fundamentally trying to do is work out what an individual child struggles with, which aspects of executive functioning they are struggling with, and then put reasonable adjustments in place to help create a level playing field for them. So for some children, it might be as simple as that they have very poor working memory and the teacher says the instruction to them and at the moment that it's being said, they really have every intention of following through on that instruction and and wanting to please the teacher and do the task. But within a few seconds, they've forgotten what the teacher said. And then um, they feel silly to ask again, or they might get shouted at if they ask again, because the teacher might say, well, why didn't you listen properly the first time? And they don't necessarily want to let others know that they don't know. So they might start then acting the clown because you can see how some of these behaviours create knock-on yeah, knock, knock on effects. Whereas if, if a teacher was to write that down on the board or write it down on a piece of paper in front of them, right in front of them, so that as soon as it went out of their head, they were able to refocus on the task because it was right in front of them, then that might help them. And if you can do this from the earliest, earliest stages, when children are very, very young, so that they start to use all of these reasonable adjustments and they just become part of their everyday learning, then it it saves some of those behavioural habits developing that are much more challenging in the classroom later on as they get older. And it stops them falling behind, which stops it becoming a bigger problem as time goes on. And nobody wants to add more to the pressure on teachers because they have so much on their plates. But that's a nice, simple, easy one to just write it down, write it on the blackboard, whiteboard, you know, and and just... The thing is, it won't work for every child. And that's the thing I think teachers need, and parents, parents and teachers need to be incredibly creative to think about what kinds of strategies, either from a parenting or a teaching point of view, are going to or are likely to work for their child. And if that one doesn't work, you know, don't give up. Then it's about, okay, adapting it, what might work instead. And the more you can try and keep those channels of communication open between the child themselves, the parent and the teacher, the more likely you are to come up between you with ideas that actually do work in practice. So for parents who are out there, is it right to approach your school and share your best practice for your your child with the school? Do you find that the door is generally open? Definitely. I mean, where you have parents and teachers um, working together and and developing a consistent approach to learning and behaviour, that's definitely where we see the best outcomes. And again, you know, parents should be aware, maybe they're not, but they should be aware that um, every local authority has to produce something called the local offer, which is lots of information for parents who have children with additional needs all in one place. So you know what's available locally, you know how to access it. And um, so if you Google Hertfordshire local offer, then you will be able to find all of that information about how to approach your school, how to make those meetings as successful as possible. Um, You'll learn about the SEN support process, the special educational needs support process, which is the process that you go through to identify what a specific child's needs are and plan some interventions to put in place to review whether those interventions are working and then to continually develop those plans so it's sort of an ongoing cycle and you don't again you don't need a formal diagnosis of of anything to initiate that SEN support process. Fantastic thanks a million Mel. Welcome back to the Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 
FM. And we're delighted to have you joining us this evening and indeed this month for our, our special focus on children and parents with ADHD. And I'm delighted to welcome back for the second part of the show, Mel Peak, who's the Autism and ADHD lead at Advance, ADD Vance. Mel, thanks a million for, for hanging on and chatting to us a little bit more on the parents show. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we're not fi- finished quizzing you yet, Mel. We still have lots, lots more questions and, and we really want to make the most of your expertise and your advice because I'm sure the first half of the show was incredibly valuable to parents, carers of children with ADHD. Now, we're going to delve into some kind of more, I suppose, contentious topics around ADHD. And the first one I'm going to throw at you is medication. So it's a bit polarizing, isn't it? Some believe in, some will never touch it. Talk to us about what you think. Well, I think one of the really interesting things about ADHD and ADHD medication in particular is that it's one of the most researched conditions. And so we have a lot of data on what ADHD is and what it's not and and how medication can help. And medication does help in about kind of 80 to 90% of cases, medication can be a really big help. So it, it's it's a shame, I think, that medication, stimulant medication has, has got such a bad press, really, from people who perhaps don't understand it very well or haven't looked at the research, because actually there's a lot out there and and it and it can be it can be like a just such a life-changing have such a life-changing impact for some children a lot of children struggle to meet their academic potential in school because they simply can't focus and they're so easily distracted and they're so impulsive and if you can find ways through medication of making the new that you know helping the neurotransmitters in the brain get those messages through then of course that's going to have an impact on their ability to learn and I've had so many experiences where there have been children we've been supporting at advance who've been falling further and further behind with their learning and then as soon as they start to take some medication their, their learning just improves immeasurably. And they make, you know, there's one one little boy I was working with who made two years of progress in half a term after he started medication. And that's not unusual. Wow. Um, what I would say is, you know, medication alone isn't enough. But what but medication alongside some good support at school, some good strategies and reasonable adjustments at school can be as, as I say, totally life-changing. And and it's the combination which is most powerful. Fantastic. So is the selection of medication possible? Is there a massive selection? Can you talk us through generally what the options are? So the, the sort of first-line treatment, and, and you know anybody can have a look online at the NICE guidelines, that's the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, their guidelines of how to treat ADHD, so the first line treatment is, is stimulant medication. It's a, it's a medication called methylphenidate. That's the generic name for it. And what they do is different pharmaceutical companies package that generic drug in different ways and give it different brand names. So you might have heard of the brand Ritalin. You might have heard of Medikinet or Equizim or Concerta. All of those brands are the same drug, methylphenidate, but packaged in a slightly different way. And in the olden days, as it were, um, you know, when these drugs were first being prescribed, that the Ritalin that was initially prescribed was a sort of immediate release version of the drug. So it would go straight into the bloodstream and all of the drug would be released in one go and it would have a, an immediate impact on the individual and then it would be it would have left their system within a few hours. Um, so you've got really, with, with immediate release drugs, you get a really big high um, and then and then a really big low if you like and so what most children and, and young people are prescribed these days is an extended release version of the drug so all of those brands I mentioned um, you know Concerta, Medicinet, Equizim they all release a little bit of the drug 
straight away that you take the pill. And then they release the rest in your system over the next few hours. So Medikinet, for example, it releases about 50% of the drug when you first take it in the morning. And then another 50% over the next, you know, four to six hours, probably depending on your individual metabolism. Whereas something like Equizim releases around 30% of the drug in the morning and about 70% over a slightly longer period of time. So so they're, they're all sort of fundamentally doing similar things, but in slightly different ways. And I guess, I suppose it depends on your age, would it? it you're probably prescribed... Or what does it depend on? I should just ask you. Yeah, no, it's it's just really interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you if mornings are a real struggle, and your child would really benefit from a a good dose of the stimulant medication in the morning, then Medikinet is a good one because, as I say, you get fifty percent in the morning. Fifty percent of the drug is released immediately. Whereas if you need a longer acting drug, then you might go for a, 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 a slightly different one, uh, maybe Concerta, which is about 20, 22% first thing, and then 78% over the rest of the day. But unfortunately, um, the medication, as with all medications, does have some side effects. And it's, you know, it's not suitable for everybody. The three main side effects are, first of all, it reduces appetite very commonly whilst the medication is actually in your system. So the good thing about ADHD medication is that it goes straight into your system, it lasts for a few hours, and then it goes straight out again. So if you're going to see an impact, you will see an impact straight away. It's not like some other anti-anxiety medications, for example, which need to build up in your system over time in order to see an effect. So whilst the drug is at its sort of peak in your system, usually around lunchtime, it's very common for a child just not to feel hungry at lunch at all. And of course, the downside of that is that then when the pills have worn off, then they are starving. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so you have to be really careful that you manage to get them, you know, get three square meals a day into them, probably, yeah. you know, bearing in mind, they might not eat anything at lunchtime. So you need to probably give them two dinners or a really, a really big snack before they go to bed, you know, to make yeah. up all those lost calories. So that's, that's the, a full English breakfast first thing in the morning. <laughs> perfect. Yes, a big breakfast before they take the pills. Yeah, exactly. There are some other medications as well that, that you can try if, if stimulants don't suit a child, then there are some other kinds of medication that you can try, some non-stimulant medication. So, but it, the success, the, the, the kind of medication and the dosage and the success just depends so much on the individual that unfortunately it is a, a matter of trial and error. And I think any good clinician will go through a process of, of titrating the medication with an individual. So that involves starting on a very low dose and gradually building up until you see sort of maximum benefit for minimum side effects. And that, that there's no such thing as the right dose for a particular age or a particular weight of child because it, it just really varies. So let me bring you back to side effects. So you said the first one is lack of appetite. What would the second one be? Some children seem to become even more emotional um, in the first few days and weeks of taking stimulant medication. And we don't really know why that is. There's a few theories. And I think one of them that's sort of gaining more credence is that for many children, this is the first time that they've been able to focus long enough to realise that their behaviours previously were really quite irritating to the people around them and were really alienating them, themselves from their peers and their families. And so it's almost this sudden realisation of how the people around me feel about me. They're suddenly aware of that. And I think that can be really emotional. That can make, make them feel really emotional and what but what we tend to see is if you can bear with that that feeling and you can help your children express their emotions in helpful ways then after typically two to four weeks that those emotions do start to dampen down again as, and they start to feel they start to feel the benefits of being able to focus they start to be more successful with friendships more successful in terms of their learning and then the improved self-esteem kind of overtakes that those 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 kind of emotions um, further down the line 
So it sounds like if you're aware that that is potentially coming, if you're armed with the knowledge and the preparation for your child, that you can weather it. And it's when you get out the other end, things are there's there's a you know there's a silver lining. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's about um, yeah, not not sort of. So if if you are seeing those sorts of symptoms in the first few days, it's about yeah, as you say, weathering that storm and trying to go through that. If you are seeing other other benefits, of course. Yeah. So if you can, if if you can see some benefits in terms of focus and attention and impulsivity, but it's coming alongside this emotionality, then it might be worth sticking with it for I would say at least four weeks, so you can see if that passes. Fantastic. And the third side effect? Oh, the third side effect. Well, it's a tricky one because a lot of children um, with ADHD struggle to get to sleep anyway. I was going, I was wondering if it was linked to sleep. Yeah. And again, some parents report that after taking um, ADHD medication, their child's sleep worsens still. They really struggle to get to sleep or, or, or stay asleep. So, that's a tricky one because, you know, as I say, it, it might be a problem anyway, and you certainly don't want to make it any worse. But again, there are different ways of, um, there's re- research going on all the time into, as I say, into ADHD and, and some really robust studies, which people can read about and, and, and learn from if they're interested. There's a fantastic American online magazine called Attitude, A-D-D-itude. Yes, we we actually invited them on the show. We're waiting oh, to hear if they can oh, join at some point this month. Oh, well, that's a great place. Whether you're a parent or a teacher or a young person or anyone else sort of interested in ADHD, that's a fantastic resource um, for all kinds of information. And, and a lot of the sort of researchers and ADHD experts from across the world have regular slots and, and webinars and, and, and resources that they post on there. So in terms of the research, the current thinking is that perhaps children with ADHD struggle to get to sleep because they can't focus on sleep. And that's, that's a really um, interesting concept, the fact that you would actually need to be able to switch your brain off, quieten it down in order to be able to drift off to sleep. That feels like a very unfair side effect. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know, but actually what you might find and, and what's being trialed in America, at least I don't know of anyone doing it here, is that they're giving children with ADHD a very small top-up dose of ADHD medication to help them go to sleep because it helps them focus on on, on sleep. That's so counterintuitive. Mm. So actually it might be that the reason they're struggling to sleep is because they've had a whole day where they have been able to focus and where they have been less impulsive. And then as the medication wears off towards the end of the day, their brain's going all over the place again. And they're not used to it because they've had, a, they haven't, you know, the brain hasn't been doing that all day. Um, and so it makes sleep even harder than it used to be because they've got this disconnect between how they feel for the majority of the day and how they're now feeling when they go to bed. And it's amazing because loads and loads of, you know, we, we're all told as parents that the one thing that we shouldn't allow our children to do before bed is go on screens and watch television or play computer games or any of those things. And yet so many parents of ADHDers report that the only way they can get them to sleep is to allow them to watch television, watch something that they've already watched before that they know really, really well, um, or listen to a, an audio book that they know really, really well. And and again, you can see how that might work, because if you can quieten the brain down and get it to focus on one thing, then it will. they're much more likely to be able to then drift off to sleep. If you don't have that focus, then your brain is going all over the place. My daughter calls it the busy brain. And your brain is just thinking of everything that went on in the day and all the things you should have, could have, would have said if you thought. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's much, if, if you can quieten that brain down, of course, it's going to be easier to drift off to sleep. That's fantastically useful. Really, really useful, Mel. Thanks a million for that. And it kind of, the next question I wanted to talk to you about was, in fact, insomnia as a subject in itself, because it does go part and part 
with ADHD, doesn't it? So is there anything else you'd add to it? I mean, so in and of its own right um, about insomnia and ADHD? I think one of the really big challenges for parents of ADHD is, is that bedtime can become such a trauma. And I don't use that word lightly. You know, bedtime can become incredibly traumatic because if child struggles to get to sleep, then they don't want to go to bed and they will try everything they possibly can to avoid it. And I don't know about you, Lydia, but, you know, for me, it's when when the children are in bed, that's the time when you can, you know, open your bottle of wine and... Put on some favorite TV and and, and kind of, you know, rebalance yourself for the next day. And if you've got children that aren't sleeping, so you're not getting any me time in the evening, it's it's so difficult for the whole family. And parents become increasingly irritable and you start shouting at your children and then bedtime is even more traumatic and the whole thing becomes just a a complete nightmare. So I think a really good routine is key. So that what they call good sleep hygiene, if you like, that, you know, that everyone in the house knows what the evening routine is going to be. And, you know, one thing leads nicely into another thing. And it lots of calming activities and things that will actually help the child quieten down their brain and drift off to sleep. And, and it's interesting, again, because a lot of people say that, you know, a warm bath can be a very calming thing. But again, some of the parents listening, you might find that, you know, for their children, actually, a bath is a very awakening, enlivening thing. And, you know, playing in the bath and playing with toys and baths might not be the best way to calm your child down. You know, putting them in front of a program that they've watched 16 times before might be a better way of calming your child down before bed. So I would say to parents, really trust your instincts because you know your children better than anybody else. And if you find a a bedtime routine that works for your child, then stick with it. Yeah. And if you can honestly say hand on heart that you've tried a routine and you've tried lots of different ways of, of trying to get everybody in bed and calm and they just can't drift off to sleep that last bit is missing then um, it is worth exploring asking your pediatrician for a prescription for something called melatonin and melatonin is a hormone that you make in the brain automatically in response to darkness so as soon as you're as soon as you switch a light off in the, in a bedroom um, or the you know the day gets darker you draw the curtains then in most people this little tiny pineal gland in the brain starts to produce melatonin which naturally quietens your brain down and there's increasing evidence to suggest that neurodiverse children those with autism and ADHD may, in some cases, not all cases, they may not produce enough melatonin naturally. So if your child is going to bed in a dark room and you're doing everything else right and they still just can't drop off, then a little dose of melatonin, which is an artificial hormone, can be the thing that makes the difference. Um, And again, for some it works really well and for others it doesn't. So it just depends whether the issue is low melatonin. And is there anything beyond melatonin if the hygiene isn't working, if that, and what if your child is just out of sync? What's the next resort? What's, is there? I think there's the sleep charity in the UK is a fantastic source of information for people of all ages um, struggling with insomnia. So there's some, they've got some really good practical tips and they have workshops specifically for people with ADHD as well and parents living with ADHD, parents living with children with ADHD. And as a last resort, I think, you know, going back to your paediatrician and exploring if there's anything else going on. Because, you know, again, in some children, it, it might be, for example, that they have very big tonsils and adenoids and they're actually suffering from sleep apnea. They're waking themselves up because they stop breathing a number of times in the night. Or there might be something else going on from a medical point of view. So it's always worth ruling those things out. And the paediatrician would be able to refer for those sorts of sleep studies. Thanks a million, Mel. Okay, so let's just take another, just a quick break and we'll come back in the third part of the show with um, to speak to Mel about a couple more topics on ADHD. 
So welcome back to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. And we're here from our, at the third part of our special, special edition show on autism and ADHD um, with Mel Peak from Advance, A-double-D, Vance. Mel, thanks a million for, for joining us and staying with us on The Parents Show this evening. Hi again, Lydia. So... I've a couple of questions before before we wind up the show this evening. So this might come as a surprise to some parents. Others might have heard this connection frequently. But is there a connection between ADHD and gender confusion? And and what have what what can you tell us about these two ideas? Well, it's it's interesting because I've been involved in this in this work now for sort of 15 years and at the beginning there was certainly some anecdotal evidence that suggested that um, children and young people who were on the autistic spectrum or with ADHD were more likely to question their sexuality or their gender but we didn't really there wasn't really any hard data at that point Um, but more studies are being done now and the latest one I saw um, suggested that neurodiverse people are seven times more likely to experience gender dysphoria. So what I mean by that is, you know, they're not happy with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And similarly, there's a, 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 they're also much more likely to be to not to be heterosexual there's there's so many uh, lots of different sexualities these days my daughter was telling me that there's something like 72 different uh, categories now so yes to, so 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 there's there certainly seems to be some differences in terms of the way neurodiverse people think about themselves their, their sexuality and their gender I again, there's no. There's lots of theories around this. You know, some people might have heard about the the the, the sort of male brain theory that Simon Baron Cohen in um, at Cambridge. He he feels that the autistic brain, for example, is more male is more of a male brain, and therefore, which can explain why some girls with autism often don't feel very girly they often say they feel more sort of asexual and that they have more in common with with boys and men and so you know a lot of girls are described as sort of tomboyish um certainly in their early years and and may go on to you know to 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 maintain those sorts of more masculine characteristics as they grow up but i i don't know i think i'm not sure i buy that personally because I think I've also seen the sort of opposite I also see a lot of boys who are neurodiverse who don't really associate with being very masculine and you know who who have a lot of female friends um, who may um, so I I think I think what, what I what I have noticed is that a lot of young people well, that all young people, of course, we know all young people are searching for that real sense of self-identity as they hit the teenage years. You know, it's all about moving away from the safety and security of your family unit and trying to find where you fit in the world, trying to label yourself in some way that makes you feel like there's a sense of belonging. All young people want a sense of belonging. And I think for many people with ADHD and, and autism, They've always felt on the periphery. They've always felt quite isolated and, and like they didn't quite belong. And particularly where they haven't had a diagnosis, they may not have realised they had ADHD or they had autism. They're still they're, they're trying to find a, a reason. Why? Why do I feel like I don't fit? And a lot of times it's the um, kind of gay community or the, the whole sort of pride community. They are much kinder more open-minded individuals. And I think um, neurodivergent young people often just feel more comfortable with people who are more open-minded and who are a little bit kinder. So they, fi- they find that sense of belonging. And so they make they think to themselves, well, it must be because I'm gay or it must be because I was born in the wrong body. And actually it's probably more because they just have finally found a kind group of people who are accepting them for who they are. And I think it would just be great if society could accept everybody for who they are, regardless of of their neuro differences, the neurological differences, or their sexual differences, or their gender differences, you know, and, and we didn't have to sort of draw these um, very 
clear distinctions. So yeah, it's a tricky one. It is. And 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 it's it's a reminder to parents of all children, regardless of their neurodivergence to to remind your children to be kind and if somebody's different if somebody's not acting like everybody else or if somebody you know wants to assign themselves a gender or a sexuality let them be i think i think the other thing that to bear in mind is that neurodivergent young people are typically and again this is a huge generalization and i hate generalizing because everyone is an individual yeah. but they're typically about a third younger socially and emotionally than their chronological age and so what that means is you know when you're 15 say age 15 you're actually operating at a social and emotional level which is more like a 10 year old and the difference between a 10 year old and a 15 year old is massive yeah so I remember um, a young girl I was working with some time ago, she was 10, and she was saying, you know, why am I not like the other girls? They're all talking about wanting boyfriends, and and they're all, they, you know, they flirt with the boys in, in, in year, this was year five and six, and they, they hold hands in the playground, and, and, and they say they're going out with somebody. You know, you know this, this young girl just thought this didn't make any sense to her at all, and therefore she concluded that she must be gay. So she said, you know, I must be gay because I don't feel like this about the boys. And I said to her, well, if you are gay, that's fine. But, you know, do you feel like that about the girls? Would you rather hold hands with the girls and go out with them? And she said, well, yeah, probably because I know the girls better, but I certainly don't want to kiss any of the girls. Yeah. And um, and I think, we, you know, we had to reassure her that she just hadn't reached that stage of maturity yet you know I guess some girls at age 10 or 11 are getting those rushes of hormones they are you know wanting to explore they're starting to want to explore their sexuality but if there are others who just aren't feeling like that Um, and I I think it's important we don't pressurize young people of either gender or sex um, to, to to kind of feel things that they don't feel yet and interestingly that young lady now is in her late teens and she has a lovely boyfriend and uh, and she looks back on those times and laughs and says you know I just just wasn't ready for that kind of relationship yeah then. fantastic so Mel it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the parents show and thank you for your advice and I think we'll just have to get you back regularly <laughs> to update <laughs> us on all the developments and uh, so our parents can benefit from your expertise. Thanks a million for joining us on The Parents Show. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, I would just just mention to parents, you know, they are we are incredibly lucky in Hertfordshire to have a number of um, voluntary organisations who support people in this area. So, you know, do look out for Advance, the charity I work for. Also Space Hertfordshire, who are a wonderful charity that provides opportunities for young for children and young people and their families to get together and, and, and build social social networks and potential kids in Hatfield who do some similar projects and also have some learning and development opportunities. We have angels in North Hertfordshire who also do similar work. Um, so if you are interested in um, finding out more about any of those organizations, do look at the Hertfordshire local offer and and everything that 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 they have on there. Brilliant. Mel Peake, Autism and ADHD Lead at Advance. Thanks a million for joining us on The Parents Show.